Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings... Mm-hmm. We present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Hello and welcome into a special edition of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar here with you. And joining me on the phone, Pro Football Focus is Eric Eager, a returning guest to the podcast. How are you, Eric? I'm good. How about you? I am doing uh, very well. I've got a lot of things to throw at you from a statistical standpoint, um, one of them being the player grades. We have four weeks now to look at the player grades. Always drives me crazy when I'm looking at Twitter and I see after week one or week two, what? This guy's grade is way off. And it's like, okay, all right, hold on. Let's uh, give some sort of sample size. So now that we've got four games, it's still a small sample, but we can start to formulate opinions on how players' statistics are, are shaping up. But first, Eric, I want to talk to you about the impact of the Vikings losing Delvin Cook. It has been uh, my opinion for a long time that you can replace 25 out of the 32 running backs in the NFL, but there are seven who bring so much to the table from an all-around standpoint, uh, receiving out of the backfield, blocking and running, that you cannot replace them. If they go down, you're in big trouble. And I would put Delvin Cook in that category, that him going down uh, could have a major impact on the Vikings offense. But uh, am I overstating that, or... Uh, would you say that uh, Del- losing Delvin Cook is a serious blow from a uh, statistical standpoint? Yeah, I would say that running backs that Vikings fans are used to would fall into that first category you talked about, which is kind of replaceable because, you know, running the football is something of a, um, you know, inefficient means by which to move the ball. But in the in the case of Dalvin Cook, what you have is a, per- is a guy who's averaging about five yards carry um, half of that after contact. And so that's, you know, substantial in terms of just running the ball. But then also he's caught 11 passes. He's averaged nine yards after the catch per catch. Um, he's also, you know, he, he's breaking tackles on receptions. And, and even even then he has three drops. And those drops were have come, as Vikings fans remember, you know, he's left a lot of yards on the field. So even that the potential there um, in terms of just in the passing game, I think that's what takes – you know, if you think about the, the David Johnsons, the Le'Veon Bell, um, those, you know, the Kareem Hunts currently uh, for Kansas City, um, that's what elevates those running backs to the really, you know, elite 
you know, from a value standpoint. And that's why I think the, the Dalvin Cook loss is such a blow to the Vikings. I think it's also, you know, when we talk about situations, the average situation, the Vikings currently don't have an average situation at quarterback either. And so having a running back that can kind of make up for some of those deficiencies with Case Keenum um, is also not having him is a huge blow for them, uh, I think. I think there's another part of it, too, which is Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen have had an incredible start to the year. And I think that those two wide receivers are good no matter what. We saw last year that they had no running game and they were still good. And because of their talent, the Vikings had good numbers when they did play action and things like that. But I feel like Delvin Cook makes those two guys and everything that happens in the passing game better because every team has to focus on Delvin Cook. Mike Zimmer said yesterday that Cook has unique big play ability, and I would agree with that, where it looks like there isn't a whole lot there, or he makes a quick cut, a special play that only the upper echelon running backs can make, and he's got 25 yards. We saw that against the Pittsburgh Steelers, and in pretty much every game he had big plays that I'm not sure many running backs are able to make. Is there, is there a provable difference with running backs impacting the rest of the offense, or is it kind of something that you can't really put a finger on? Well, I think uh, passing the ball out of heavier personnel um, has, has been proven over the years to be more efficient. So if you're looking at uh, you know, the, the Atlanta Falcons a season ago, where something like had something like 150 passer rating when uh, throwing out of you know two and three tight end sets, um, you know you did that piece about how you know how how well the Vikings have done with a fullback in the game, um, and 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 then play action you know has historically been pretty good in terms of league wide, and I think when a running game is sufficiently uh, you know causes sufficient fear in the defense, it just amps that up substantially. Um, so yeah, I think with without Cook in there, um, you're going to have an issue. You know, if they come out with Latavius Murray and C.J. Ham in the backfield with David Morgan and and Kyle Rudolph at tight end, um, that's not going to scare a defense at all. And so and so that that uh, compensatory like boost to to the wide receiver in the game at the time, uh, it's just not going to be there the way it is with Cook. Uh, and so yeah, I think. It's going to trickle down to the rest of the offense. Now, I don't know how much, but they'll certainly feel it everywhere else. Now, Latavius Murray, they signed him thinking that they could boost themselves to maybe having an average running game, right? You improve the offensive Mm -hmm. line, and here's a guy who has been in the Pro Bowl and a proven running back. You've got Jarek McKinnon as well as a role player. So we'll have an average running game. And then Cook has changed that entire equation. But... Can they go back to having an average running game and still survive? And is Latavius Murray even an average running back? Because I do question that in some ways with the offensive line that he had in Oakland to only average four yards a carry is a little concerning, even if he was the guy who pounded it on short yardage. Because I went back and took out all the short yardage plays and it only made it like 4.2 yards per carry when the other running backs they had were averaging over five and they just maul people, that's not this Vikings offensive line. This line is better, but it's nowhere as good as Oakland. And then there's the fact that Murray is coming off ankle surgery and said that his ankle is still sore. I mean, it kind of points toward more of being a below-average running game from going from one of the top and most effective to a bottom third. 
Yeah, I would say that that's probably fair. You know, the the thing that Murray had, the Oakland offense had, that, that kind of was beneficial to Murray was the changeup with the Jalen Richards and the uh, um, uh, Washington, the other the other back that they had. As you said, both averaged more than five yards a carry. And so Murray is kind of a changeup to the changeups and all those kinds of things. I don't necessarily see um, Jarek McKinnon being somebody that the Vikings, you know, yeah, he's kind of proven himself to not, you know, be up to the task in terms of carrying the ball between the tackles and things like that. So it really is going to be Murray. And the issue with Murray is, like, as you said, you know, he basically gets what's blocked and, and nothing more, nothing less. And that's that's how you can average four yards a carry the last two seasons with what uh, has been one of the, the, the best offensive lines uh, in the, you know, entire um, NFL. I think one of the things that's beneficial if you're a Vikings fan is the fact that Murray can score from the stripes. That was one of their biggest issues last year with Asiata. Their offensive line has substantially improved, um, and so I don't see um, necessarily as big of an issue as last year. It's not going to be you know us banging our heads against the wall when they run the ball, um, but but it's not going to you know it's not going to come close to the production that Cook has provided through four, four games. I, I think this would still feel like a serious gut punch to Vikings fans because the impact is so significant with Cook's talent, but it's doubled by the fact that there's murky waters about when Sam Bradford is actually going to come back. It wouldn't stun me if he came back this week, and it wouldn't stun me if he was out for the entire season. Just with how little has been put out, with how little they've said, we just don't know what's going on with uh, Sam Bradford's knee. But... I, you know, I was looking over the, the next four games for the Vikings, and three of the teams are pretty poor. And two of them are going to run out rookie quarterbacks, and the other one has a washed-up Joe Flacco, and then you've got the Packers mixed in, but that's at home. Can they survive that with Case Keenum playing quarterback and win two out of those games? I, I feel like that's reasonable to ask, even as frustrating as Case Keenum can be to watch, and, and we saw that against the Lions. Right, and, and I so I, I showed you this graph on Twitter, but it was like the, the Keenum coaster, you know, where you have look at all the starts and or look at all the games, and you know, nine of the twenty nine we we would grade out positively, right? And so, you know, and and we saw a game like that against the Buccaneers, where he was one of the reasons they won, you know, because he's going down the field and he's very effective, and and against Detroit they did a far better job of bottling him up, although he still made some plays downfield. I think. You know, the, the issue is, you know, when you face a team that's weaker than you, you just have to continue to make plays, uh, make efficient plays in the passing game. And the issue with Keenum is that he can make the downfield throw, right? He can get these chunk yards, but it's really difficult to trust him play for play. You know, let's get an eight-yard completion on first and ten. You know, let, let's win every down. It's really hard to, to expect out of Keenum, who's sort of more of a high-variance guy which is why I would not be surprised if they beat Green Bay um, with him. Uh, you know, it's, it's a low probability thing, but it would not shock me. But it would also not shock me if they laid an egg uh, in Soldier Field for the second straight year. So it's, it's really weird to sort of project forward. It is good that they're facing, you know, Kaiser and Trubisky and how dare you uh, say bad things about Joe Flacco. But, <laughs> you, know, there, there are, you know, there are winnable games, as you said, on the schedule. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's not too far, you know, to expect two and two or three and one from them. Uh, and everything considering, if you go into the bye, um, you know, at, at five and three uh, or four and four, that's probably okay. 
Yeah, considering that you lost your starting quarterback to go into the bye at 4-4 four and four would be, I think, a, a huge plus. For any team that loses their starting quarterback, it's usually a death sentence for your season, and they would yep. still be alive at that point. Uh, losing Cook is a big deal, but if Sam Bradford comes back, I think we saw at least a snippet of it in week one that this offense could be more dangerous and effective which kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to get to with you, which is some of these individual player grades. And uh, first, um, why don't you calm people down with uh, their rage tweets about the PFF grades? Um, it's, it's become, now that everyone has the PFF package, uh, it, it seems like more and more it's an excuse to tweet out, can you believe that this player has this grade? PFF means nothing. Though there are 29 of the 32 teams that themselves use pro football focus stats. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's kind of become almost cliche uh, to tweet out a player grade and then yell about how wrong it is. Yeah. And, and you know, as much as anybody, you know, we talk a lot, uh, you know, privately, I, I certainly I certainly don't look at, you know, the fact that Terrence Newman's a 79.0 and say that there's anything definitive about him relative to somebody who's a 74.3, right? Like, I think that that, that grade is, is a, is one piece of the puzzle. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've always tried to do on, on Twitter or social media is have a conversation about how these are constructed. And so, you know, the, the big one is obviously Xavier Rose, who, hey, you know, up until last week, had had a pretty poor a number grade, but if you looked at literally everything else, uh, he had had a pretty decent um, a pretty decent season at that point. And so, a couple of things I would just comment on. And the first thing is that we don't adjust for competition. So, you know, if Xavier Rhodes plays a seventy snap game and he gives up, you know, only four receptions to Anto- uh, Antonio Brown on eight targets we're not adding like a little boost because Antonio Brown is the best, one of the best receivers in the game. And, and the reasons for that, you know, you can do that, but one of the reasons that's an issue. And I, I think I, I said this to you about Daniel Hunter, you know, if we, if somebody's elite, but we don't know it yet, then we're kind of going backwards and saying, Oh, well, you know, Bobby Massey was beaten by Daniel Hunter in week one. And we found out week eight that Daniel Hunter's great. So we got to go backfill his grade because he really got beat by somebody good. You know, so that's touchy. So then, you know, we kind of allow the, the consumer to sort of apply their own intelligence to the grade. Now, there are some issues in terms of like, you know, we, we give like a negative one grade for a holding penalty or when Xavier Rhodes taunts somebody on the sideline and gets a 15-yard penalty. That's going to, to lower his grade and really has, you know, it's a huge part in a, in a four-week sample. Uh, and that's how you get kind of these low grades uh, for some players. And then at the same time, for a position like safety, if Harrison Smith makes five splash plays the first four games, he's going to be the number one graded safety just because there's not a ton of opportunity for those guys. So, you know, and, and that's why it's always good. Like, I would, I would, you know, love to explain some of these things. If you have a question about a grade, just, you know, ask. And as you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, on this play, we, you know, it was this, on this play, it was that. And, and I think that that's part of the conversation. The signature stats to me are, are to some degree, um, probably more telling at this juncture in the season. But again, it's four games. We're all talking about really small samples here. Yeah, and, and the thing with uh, Xavier Rhodes, too, is that when the Vikings are up in a game, like many teams, I guess, or every team, they're going to play a little farther off. They're going to give up 
some catches in front of guys because they know that that's just wasting time and getting them closer to winning. And I remember last year, Xavier didn't have a great grade, I think, against or gave up a touchdown against DeAndre Hopkins late in the Texans game when the Vikings were just demolishing the Texans. And that's going to go down is that he gave up a touchdown and a negative grade on that play, possibly. So, you know, it's late in the game. It doesn't really matter. If you're the head coach, you look at that play and you go, ah, whatever. I mean, we were playing back anyway. So what? But on the grade, it counts the same. And if you know these things, you can easily adjust how you think about what the grade really means. So that I just I just thought that would be good to kind of in, inform people about how this stuff works uh, before we go into some of the individual grades. So let's do that. The most interesting one to me out of the entire Minnesota Vikings roster is Anthony Barr who right now ranks as not an elite quite, but just below that level as an upper echelon linebacker through four weeks, which I think should have the Vikings just through the moon with happiness that Anthony Barr has had so far in the first quarter, uh, very much a bounce back season. Yeah. And I would, I would say that a lot of it is not necessarily production from him, although he made some nice plays against Detroit, um, but a lot of it is just not making some of the errors that he made a season ago, especially in coverage. So he's allowed just you know less than um, 0.85 yards for coverage snap. Last season, every time that he co- covered somebody, he averaged a quarter of a yard more um, per snap. And so just not making, not giving up big plays in the passing game. Um, I know one game he you know he allowed a lot of catches into his coverage, but they were all stopped for short yardage. And I think. That's a huge part of Zimmer's defense when they do that, you know, when they do the double-A gap blitzes and the, the safety blitzes off the edge, having backers who can who can get wide and tackle running backs in the flat. I mean, that's really where Barr and Kendrick shine, and, and Barr's done a great job there. You know, he's gotten some pressure on the quarterback. Um, he's gotten some run stuff, and, and this is a big one. He's only missed one tackle the whole season so far. I think just the simple act of just not making bad plays has really been Barr's uh, you know, bars, uh, you know, uh, benefits so far this season. Um, once he starts making some splash plays like on glitches or it gets an interception, he almost had one against Detroit. Um, we'll, we'll see even, I think, greater things for the Vikings defense for sure. Yeah. And, uh, the bounce back was really something this defense needed, especially now with Case Keenum playing quarterback, everyone needs to be great on the defense in order for them to win games, I think. And they were against Detroit and still end up losing that game. Uh, But last year, it was one of the only chinks in the armor was the fact that Barr was playing so poorly. And and now you kind of lean toward it must have been an injury, right? Because he was getting shredded on tackles way too often. I looked at uh, your competitor, Football Outsiders, has a stat of uh, how many times a defender's tackle is broken. And Anthony Barr's was almost 10% higher last year than it was in 2015, which, I mean, why would that be, right? That Did he forget how to tackle mm-hmm. within a year, or could it have been something else? And maybe positioning is some of it, but I think uh, it, it's possible that there was an injury there, and that's why he dropped off. And now, at least through four weeks, the, you're thinking about Barr as a long-term player here again, as opposed to, well, that might be a guy you have to eventually replace. And, and next year they, they picked up his fifth-year option, but 
it was going to have to be a decision of whether to keep him on that fifth-year option or to decide to, to just cut him and let him go. And if he continues to play like this, then you'll be happy to have him for another year on that fifth-year option, even though it's it's pretty expensive. Um, so we talked about Rhodes' grade a little bit. Now, I, I want to get to one more on the, on the defensive side before we uh, move over to the offense, and that is Linval Joseph. Um, one of the things that I appreciate greatly about the pro football focus grades is that they often tell you a lot about players that you might not know about just having watched the game on TV on Sunday. Um, because especially since television makes it very hard, this is why I go back and watch the coaches tape. And that's what pro football focus uses as well to grade is it, it, where you can see everyone. That's why they call it all 22, all 22 players. And when you watch the tape on Linval Joseph, I, I don't know that there are more impressive players in the league to watch. It's it's fun, and I almost feel bad for football fans that they don't get to, while watching on TV, truly appreciate the greatness of Linval Joseph. Yeah, I mean, they, they asked so much of him, too, on the defensive side of the ball in terms of, you know, being productive but also taking up blockers. You know, he's he's there to free up the playmakers behind him, but then he somehow also – is able to be, you know, make plays. I mean, he's first in the, we have this stat called run stop percentage. And basically a stop is just a tackle where, you know, the offensive team is unsuccessful. So, you know, stopping a run on first and 10 for two yards or three yards. And Joseph is first among his position group in, in producing those types of plays. And it's not particularly close. Um, he has 13 of those so far this year. The, the thing that's crazy, and I think that, you know, one of the underrated parts of Joseph so far is they've lost Sharif Floyd for the better part of two seasons. Tom Johnson, who has been an uber-productive player during his career, has only three pressures so far um, this season. Brian Robinson's not particularly productive so far. Shamar Stephan, even though he had a sack against Tampa, is not really a pass rusher. Joseph is eighth in his, in, in his position group in rushing the passer, getting eight pressures. So not only... Is he, is he, you know, his run stuffing self, but he's also making plays, rushing the passer. And a lot of them are on first and second down where it's actually harder to get pressure, right? It's actually statistically easier to get pressure on third down. Joseph's generally not in there on third down um, as much, but he's, he's actually pretty productive rushing the passer, even on downs where the, the run pass play is not clear. And so, you know, it's harder for pass rushers to get there. So, He's a fantastic player. I mean, the Vikings got a complete deal with him in his first contract. Um, and, and, you know, and what's really nice about defensive linemen is, is they tend to age well. So he'll probably be pretty good for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, watching him against Detroit, uh, it was just a masterpiece. It, it, it's funny about statistics in sports because sometimes with one guy, a certain stat can mean nothing, and another guy, it can mean a lot. If a linebacker has nine tackles in a day, you might go, well, okay, I don't know if he played well or not. I don't know if those nine tackles were blowing up plays or whether those were down the field. When a nose tackle gets nine tackles in a game, you can guarantee he was a monster that day because everything is at the line of scrimmage. And there was one particular play where the Lions ran a screen and Joseph held off the center with one hand worked his way down the offensive line as the line was moving and then got the running back on the cutback. It's just, I mean, yeah. how many nose tackles in the league make that play? And, uh, you know, the, the way that your, your grading goes is grading every play 
from minus two, which is the worst possibility, to two, right? So if you throw an interception that's really terrible, you're minus two. If you throw a great touchdown, you're two. Basically is the simplistic way to put it. And I don't know what that play got graded individually, but I thought that's about as good of a play as that position player could ever make. And so when I pull this up, his statistics, and I see he's seventh in the league, but the numbers are really, really close in the top ten, I think that's, that's right on. That really tells you that when the players and everybody else is talking about the greatness of Linval Joseph, that it matches up to what his impact really is on the field. Yeah, I mean, he's he's one of the the pieces of that defense that, I mean, it, it, you know, he's he's not they they can't get rid of him. You know, they if he gets injured, um, they're going to be in deep trouble. So, you know, he's an indispensable piece. Harrison Smith, another one. Xavier Rhodes, another one. Um, he he's basically you know he holds the point up there, uh, and and like you said, he just makes plays. I think even on Detroit's first run play, you know. Um, that play got bounced to the outside, and Joseph chased it down for you know to keep it from being like a long gain. It was like something like a seven-yard gain for Abdullah, and Joseph chased him down, uh, an NFL running back from behind. Well, here, here's so, another um, here's another benefit of the PFF grades that from how I use them is that if you're trying to figure out, I like to look at the other team, and so I can ask questions in the locker room and, and figure out who's been playing well. That if you're looking at edge rushers sack totals don't always tell the story whether a guy's been Mm -hmm. really great or not because if he's getting pressures and hits and things like that then he's doing his job he's just not getting quite the the sacks which seem to vary uh, uh, for different players some years a guy will have seven another year guys will have 12 and those two seasons are kind of looked at differently even though they might be really similar what i'm getting to is daniel hunter that i think daniel hunter through the first three weeks of the season was really good but he didn't have sacks, and so people were asking him and writing articles, what's going on with Daniel Hunter and sending tweets. It's like, uh, he's fine. He'll be all right. (laughs) I mean, teams are focusing on him much more, but then he finally comes through against Detroit. But it would have been predictable if you looked at the way he was playing in those first three games by how he graded out. Yeah, and I think the last time I was on this podcast, we talked about that very scenario, right, that, you know, Having having getting pressure still, but not getting home, and you know if he and he's on pace for eight sacks. I think we even threw that number out there, right? Like if he gets eight sacks this year, we're going to complain because he he because he there were four plays during the season where he got pressure but didn't get a sack, right? And it's just it's it is strange to to you know um, you look at Vic Beasley's a guy at sixteen sacks, but not nearly as many pressures uh, as some other guys. You know those are that that's where I think the PFF grades really do have, um, you know, you know, carry some water. The other thing that we do do, which I think is important in the process, is we also chart when a guy beats a block, um, independent of whether he got pressure. So if a quarterback takes a three-step drop, uh, gets the ball quickly on like a hitch to a, to a wide receiver, but Hunter completely like destroys the right tackle, we'll give a grade to both guys. And so that's why I think, you know, Hunter, even, I think even his pressure numbers are down this year, uh, from a season ago. Um, but it might, it might just be because of the way the teams are playing the Vikings, getting the ball, rid of the ball quickly. It might be that his wins are just on the wrong downs, right? And as a defensive lineman, it's very much, you know, it's very like baseball like, right? You win on, you know, something like 30% of your downs, right? And they can be the wrong 30% some years and 
and you just don't get the sack totals, even though you're just the same player, right? Mm-hmm. Just like Babbitt in baseball, things like that. So um, that's why Hunter, he is a pretty good grade so far, even though his numbers aren't quite as good. I think Vikings fans um, projecting to the future should not think of him as a disappointment this year, even if he only gets something like eight sacks. I also think in the two out of the first three games, they were way up. And I think it's harder for defensive ends to get pressure when their team is way up because uh, you can double team them. They're only going to rush four. They're going to drop everybody back. So you can put two guys on Hunter. You can send a guy chipping on him. There's almost no threat of a blitz when you're up whatever they were against Tampa Bay, 34 to 10 at one point. There's almost no reason if you're Mike Zimmer to start sending blitzes and risk a big play against. So you're going to give the other team opportunities to slow down your defensive ends. I think in a very small sample size that may have impacted his number of pressures too. Uh, The offensive line was the biggest conversation last year because of what a disaster it was. And I hope you took notice last night on Monday Night Football of T.J. Clemmings making it into one play for Washington. (laughs) One play. And he gave up a quarterback hit. uh, Equaling the total of quarterback hits Trent Williams had given up for the whole season before that. Um, (laughs) I'm a little bit surprised that anyone even picked him up, but I guess you got to take a shot on a guy that uh, got released like that. But Clemmings just looking exactly like himself last night, and he was nothing short of offense wrecking last year, that he was an individual wrecking ball to the offense. He was so poor. And this year, I think Riley Reef has been terrific, and Mike Remmers has been serviceable to good, somewhere in between there. And Mm -hmm. the only shortcoming on the offensive line from what I see with my eye is Nick Easton. And that kind of matches up with the PFF grades. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about Clemmings and, and this comes up, I think a little bit, this came up a lot before we had, you know, so many team clients, but um, Clemmings had his best game last year against the, against Washington. Um, he was average against Washington last year. And it's just funny that like he gets signed by Washington I think there was a similar thing with, like, Eric Walden uh, when he was with Green Bay, had, like, one really good game against the Colts, and he was kind of below average everywhere else. The Colts signed him in the offseason. Um, that is kind of the what, what happens when you're only limited to, like, watching a, a random guy, a random sample of a guy's three or four games. You know, you might, you might get, like, either, you know, uh, a false negative or false positive on a guy. Um so that was interesting. You know, he gave up a pressure to Frank Zombo, who, as Chiefs fans know, um, can't get pressure on anybody. So it was even more funny um, uh, against, you know, last night. But, yeah, being back to, I mean, yeah, Reef and Remmers have been, you know, uh, pretty good. Um, Remmers had a difficult time against Pittsburgh. I think he gave up a sack, which I think we credited to Keenum. But as you and I watched the tape, I think it probably should have gone to Remmers. Um, and, and Reef, you know, he had a fantastic block and the touchdown run by Cook. Um, so he and he's been good both in the run game and the pass game. I mean, it is just a substantial difference when your quarterback has a little bit of comfortability back there. Um, they got a little bit. They were brilliant against Tampa. They were a little less so against Detroit, but as a whole, you know, very much um, you know an upgrade. I think left guard's an interesting thing. I was uh, I was talking to an offensive line coach uh, in the league, and and he claimed that left guard was sort of the most random position uh, in in the entire offensive line. And you sort of think about that from the perspective of um, it's just those, those grades fluctuate year to year. And so I actually took a, a little dive into it and looked at 
what does a good PFF grade mean for a left guard um, in, in terms of expected points? And it was true that left guard um, was the, the, the offensive success was the, was the least sensitive to the left guard's play, hmm. which is, I thought, pretty interesting. Um, and, and actually statistically significantly so. So that's kind of interesting. You think about that, you know, you, you look around the league and, um, you know, a lot of the three techniques, there are some really elite three techniques like Aaron Donald um, and before J.J. Watt kind of moved out to the edge, him um, and, you know, and so and some guys, some three techniques are like Shamar Stephan, right, who, you know, can't get pressure on anybody. And so you see that kind of like fluctuation between playing a guy who's really weak versus playing a guy who can get pressure versus literally anybody. Um, and they, you know, playing on the backside of the quarterback uh, uh, when he's throwing the ball, you kind of see that. So I think the Vikings actually, from an analytical perspective, did pretty well here in putting their weakest lineman at left guard. And he has played such. I mean, he's got a, a great PFF grade below 40, which is uh, not good. Hopefully he improves. But even if he doesn't, I think the rest of the offensive line strong play uh, leaves Vikings fans, I think, um, with some hope moving forward, especially when Bradford comes back. I, I, there are some areas of, of gray with Nick Easton, too, because, you know, if you look at Alex Boone's rating last year, just his overall grade, he was pretty good. And you might say, well, you got rid of a guy who has a much better grade than Nick Easton has right now. But a major part of Nick Easton's grade, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Alex Boone's grade was in his pass blocking, but his run blocking was really poor last season, as the whole offensive line was. But his stuck out for how low it was. And the reason that they decided to turn to Nick Easton was that he was more mobile and he could get out on those zone runs for Delvin Cook and, and block on the move much better than a guy that was six foot eight. So even though there has been some downs to Nick Easton, especially when facing Cameron Hayward, which, by the way, I mean, what a monster <laughs> that guy is. Yeah. In terms of yep. just watching an individual dominate a game, that was one of the best individual games on tape that I can remember watching Cameron Hayward against the Vikings, just crushing Nick Easton. So that's a big part of it. Uh, and he's kind of a defensive end, three technique, like you said, very different than uh, some other in the league. But, you know, I think so you've got plays where he he may have worked out really well and been much better than Alex Boone, but he can be beat by those top-notch three techniques one-on-one. So you kind of have to decide, all right, both of these players have their strengths and weaknesses. Neither is an elite guard. So which way are we going to go with it? And this fits the offensive scheme much better, at least when Delvin Cook was in there. So th- those are the types of things that I think about uh, in terms of the grades, not just player X is better than player Y, but also how might they fit inside of that system? So even if Alex Boone's pass blocking grade raised him up and made him look like the better player, I think your entire offense would be more efficient with a guy that might have a lower pass grade at left guard, but a better ability to do what they need him to do, if that makes sense. Um, One more thing for you. Before we went on here, we were talking a little bit about the future of the offense and different weapons and things like that that they're going to have to turn to more often without Delvin Cook. I've been really interested in focusing on Kyle Rudolph through these first four games because if you're a fantasy player and you drafted Kyle Rudolph high – you are really mad right now because they're not throwing him the ball very often. But I think a sign of the offense ticking well is that he hasn't gotten that many targets, but when he has, he's been effective. Does that match up with what you found statistically? 
Yeah, I mean, so, right. So the the issue last year, I think that, you know, non-fantasy players, people that just wanted the Vikings to win, uh, had was that, you know, Kyle Rudolph was, you know, some very productive from a volume standpoint. But in terms of, from the perspective of, of the Vikings winning possessions and winning games, uh, you know, very weak. Um, you know, so he was, they averaged seven and a half targets last year. Uh, per game to Rudolph. Now this year it's been cut more than in half to three and a half targets. Um, but on those targets, they're averaging a full yard more uh, towards Rudolph. So he's actually becoming more efficient. And and where the Vikings are seeing sort of the uptick is in their receivers where, you know, last season they averaged about um, so something like uh, 14, tar- yeah, 14 targets to Diggs and Thielen. That's up to 16 targets now per game. And that's really where the benefit is because every time, every time you throw it to dig the ceiling, you're, you're far more, um, you know, you're far more efficient than when you throw it to Rudolph. And so you're just seeing, I think the Vikings did a pretty good job of, of self scouting in the out. And what you're talking about with Boone as well. Um, I think they just really did a good job of self scouting themselves saying, you know, these are our playmakers and we're going to, especially with a quarterback who's weaker, we're going to go out and leverage the, the you know, the substantial talent we have on the outside with Thielen and Diggs. And we're, we're not going to, even though I think it's enticing for our quarterback to do so, we're not going to allow him to throw as many dump-off passes to Rudolph because they're simply not efficient plays. Big picture question for you. Um, and, and, I mean, of course I agree with what you're saying on, on Rudolph, that he can be more effective as a part of the offense and as a player if he isn't the main focus of dump-off passes, that means that uh, the quarterback is able to look farther down the field. And I, I actually think that Rudolph has been, at least so far, a better run blocker. He was very poor yep. last year. But he's – which, you know, I, I wonder about these things too, Eric. How much each player affects the next guy? I mean, if T.J. Clemmings is the worst left tackle in football, how much does that impact what Kyle Rudolph has to do to block – on a regular basis. I mean, how much he's asked to help, how much he's asked to face defensive ends one-on-one as opposed to linebackers or safeties and things like that. And it's just another thing to keep in mind. I've always had that thought in hockey that you'll say, well, this guy had a down year, right? But their number one center got hurt. And so that impacted everyone around them because guys had to move up the lineup and weren't prepared to take on top competition. So I think of it as a similar effect there. Anyway, Big picture on this team, where should we power rank them if they get Sam Bradford back? I mean, power rankings are, you know, silly, but top third, (laughs) middle third, bottom third. Are we looking at a team, if they get Sam Bradford back, let's say in a week or two, that can still compete for playoffs, Super Bowl, not the playoffs? I mean, where are you kind of placing them at this moment? Yeah, and power rankings are those things, right? So we write one for PFF every week based upon a model, and we've had the Vikings kind of middle of the pack all year. Um, but again, those are that you take those with a grain of salt. I would say, you know, if you're if they have Bradford back and the defense is healthy, even without a healthy Dalvin Cook, um, an offensive line healthy as well, I think you're talking about a borderline playoff team, right? So. So, and in a league where I think this is also this compounds everything, in a in a league where aside from Kansas City, it's really hard to find a team that you can 
you know, put your money on every week, right? The New England's defense is terrible. Atlanta looks like they're, you know, they're having issues offensively, plus they're a little bit injured. Pittsburgh has not gotten it going offensively. All the way down the list, Oakland isn't very good yet. You know, all those kinds of things. In a league like that, I think you put the Vikings somewhere around 12 to 15. Um, and, and that's a good place to be, I think, because, you know, you get a couple breaks going your way, which they never do for the Vikings. Well, it's just, you know, humor, humor everybody. Um, if you get a couple breaks going your way, you might sneak in and get a wild card, even win a division. I mean, Green Bay, uh, you know, it would have been nice for Vikings fans if, uh, if Cincinnati could have closed that game out week three against Green Bay. But nonetheless, they're just a game behind uh, the Packers. I think Detroit is a little bit fool's gold, as many people would probably uh, attest. They've, they've won the turnover battle every single week and haven't won by that much in each game. So I think that there's, you know, there's some value to be had if you want to fade uh, the Lions. So I think the Vikings are in a position, they're certainly not out of it. Uh, you know, if Keenum can keep them above water at two and two, three and one over the next uh, uh, couple games, um, I think that they're yeah somewhere between twelve and fifteen so far. All right, Eric, where can people uh, follow your work? Yeah, so um, on ProFootballFocus.com, each week we do a, uh, a power rankings based upon a model called ELO, um, and then. On Thursday or Friday, uh, my colleague and I do some picks against the spread. Uh, I think the Vikings have been one that we've been wrong on a couple times, so uh, so that's why I had such uh, you know tempered uh, tempered words when I was talking about them just now. Um, and yeah, just follow me on Twitter at uh, pff underscore Eric Eager. All right. Well, I appreciate all the time as always, Eric. Follow him on Twitter and his work on Pro Football Focus. You know that Mike Zimmer's reading it every week, so you should too. And uh, we will hopefully some people get that joke and uh, we will uh, we will be back soon here on the Purple Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday. And as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100 percent agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, BetOnline for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts.